Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the theme song of children's BBC's myth-busting documentary strand is that a fact, open by querying whether Morris dancers wear those bells to keep away the evil spells. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is actress, singer, writer, and 1980s pop culture geek, Deborah Tracy. Deb, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Oh, well, there we go, Tim. Hi. Well, at the moment, I'm writing a lot. But I tell you what, in a few months' time, because I'm sorry to use the C word, Christmas, but I will be appearing in Panto at Royal and Durngate in Northampton this year. So you can come and check it out. Come and check out my cool fairy. Well, funnily enough, I believe we'll get round to this. Panto kind of has a link into your first choice, which anyone who's been listening to this for a long time will know that I've been waiting for somebody to choose this. Not going to say what it is. Let's just hear the theme music. certain age and certain disposition no mistaking that that's the theme from Hardwick House I've talked about this enough over the years Deb why don't you tell everyone what it was oh my goodness Hardwick House was a sitcom a British sitcom quite anarchic set in a school and it's famous it kind of lingers in consciousness because it was pulled famously pulled from broadcast two episodes in and the official line was that it was so offensive and so terrible and so damaging to the moral fiber of Britain's youth that ITV had to pull it and the remaining five episodes never to be seen again but I remember it you remember it it was on ITV prime time so it wasn't like you know kind of watching it through banisters or you know sneaking to watch it on the portable upstairs it was a primetime show but yeah I remember it just kind of seeing in the paper that oh it's not going to come back on again because it's so offensive and it's so terrible yeah that is Hardwick House well I think that's why for so long it was such an important thing to people because I know people that have, yeah. you know have watched the two broadcast episodes since I mean the other ones have later leaked out which we'll come back to but and they've yeah. said I don't understand it's not very funny what's all the fuss about it was the fact that it was just pulled away because I remember they showed I think the first two were on consecutive evenings, which, you know, again, is asking for trouble. The playground the next day, everyone in school was saying, did you see Hardwick House both nights? And then it disappears. It's already been the trailer on showing that Rick and Aid are going to show up. And even in those few seconds in that trailer, they were amazing. This is it. And again, I think whenever you kind of do nostalgic things like this and you revisit things decades later, and sometimes you prefer the kind of mythology that you built up to something in your head, because I was like, oh no, what, what was the name of that sitcom? And it was so, and I remember enjoying it. I remember thinking it was so cool. And I remember Aid Edmondson and Rick Mail being in it. Absolutely adore Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson. But it's only now I realise that, oh wow, they were in those two episodes. So I must have misremembered. But yeah, it must have been a trailer because I'm sure I remember seeing them. But yeah, they were they were brilliant, you know, in, the, in that trailer. And actually, again, as you say, the later episodes are available. You, you can find them on the Internet. And in watching them, I, again, just revisiting them as an adult, I'm like, there's absolutely nothing offensive or even particularly anarchic about it. I mean, they were good. But yeah, it's kind of I, I feel a little bit cheated that it wasn't like this kind of like really anarchic really naughty you know sort of guilty pleasure it's just kind of it's a rather it's a sort of so-so British sitcom I mean what do you think of this Tim I mean I I think if it had been broadcast on Channel 4 at 10 p.m on a Friday night I mean I don't know I mean it probably wouldn't have been an absolute smash hit but I think you know it kind of would have been like oh yeah you know it's 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 okay but I think because it was pulled I think it has got this mythology around it. exactly yes I mean apparently yeah. it was originally intended for the kind of edgy comedy slot on Sunday nights on ITV where you normally what? got things yeah. like Hot Metal and Hail and Pace which it's That's not that it. different to Hot Metal really when you right. compare the two right. I think to be fair 
people watching it, I think it would have been 8pm, weren't expecting the electrocution gag in the second episode, which isn't somebody, <laughs> isn't accidental. A teacher perpetrates it deliberately on the pupil, who's then seen being carried out, like with half her face burnt off almost. I, I mean, maybe that was a bit unfair, actually, because that actually was funny. I did watch that again. That was like, which says a lot about me. Yeah, I mean, if it had gone out in that 10 p.m. slot, and again, you know, I, I think of like brilliant comedies at that time that, that used to go out on ITV at 10 p.m. on a Sunday night. You know, The New Statesman, Spitting Image, Hail and Pace. You know, and they they were great. I mean, it wouldn't have been out of place there, but I don't think it would have become the sort of legend that we kind of have. And that I have watched kind of subsequent bits of it. I, I had to kind of give a special mention to Pam Ferris, who I thought was really good at it yes, as well. Like, yeah. I, thought, I thought the French teacher, she's actually, she is, I'm sure you and a lot of the listeners will get this reference. She's what B. Arthur was to the Star Wars Christmas special. She kind of, she brings, <laughs> yeah, the much maligned Star Wars holiday special, I should say. Pam Ferris is kind of the B. Arthur in this because it's a bit of a sausage fest, if you don't mind my saying but she's there and she really holds her own there. She has this really quirky, eccentric character. And, you know, Mr. Fowl is, you know, under, he's horrible to everyone, but he's particularly nasty to her. But she holds her own and she has some really zingy one-liners. Like, I did actually snigger again uh, a few of her lines. You know, so I had to kind of give a, a, a special mention to that. But, but again, it's like the casting of it as well, because they had absolutely top-rated, like, absolute A-grade actors, British actors, veteran actors. It really should have worked. But I think, again, as you say, because it was that eight o'clock ITV, very, very kind of staid kind of straight comedy. You know, it's kind of things like Fresh Fields, Duty Free, you know, those kind of sitcoms. I think it was just probably more just really weird. I think anyone watching it thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to watch Fresh Fields or, you know, they'll just be thinking, well, where's Penelope Keith? <laughs> where's Keith back? You know, those kind of those kind of safe faces. I really wanted it to be good and I really wanted it to be funny. I really wanted it to be an arc. There was actually quite a few parodies as well of things like Grange Hill. Like I remember there was at round about that time as well, there was a kids TV show called Your Mother Wouldn't Like It, which had a parody of Grange Hill called Palace Hill. I even remember the theme tune, but I'm not going to sing it now because, no, I won't. But that was more anarchic and probably more offensive in places than the Hardwick House was. But Hardwick House just got totally kind of canned for being this terrible thing. <laughs> yeah, which, it, as you say, it really isn't me. I think, I mean, there was years later, but the Grimleys, which is later ITV sitcom, has kind of got a similar premise and is much, much stronger. But that was kind of, everyone loves the Grimleys. Your kids can watch it too. And that was worse in places. Well, maybe, maybe Hardwick House was a bit ahead of its time. And actually, that I think, again, because people just didn't know what to do with it. And I don't know if the powers that be kind of deliberately torpedoed it by putting it on at that time. Maybe they just thought, oh, no, this is, you know, I don't know. I don't know why they made the decision to put it out at that time slot. I do think it's the time slot that was just kind of the final nail in the coffin. Well, I think that somebody somewhere signed off yeah. on that and was embarrassed by it professionally because that yeah. legacy stayed for years and years. And I can say that with absolute certainty because it nearly came out on DVD in about 2005. And I really? wrote the booklet that would have gone with it. I spoke to nearly everyone involved. The one person who I couldn't get to interview was Rick Mayle. And that was because his agent sort of very politely explained that, you know, after the quad bike accident, he had a lot of trouble with his memory. And she said, if he tries oh, yeah. to remember old things while he's learning yeah. lines, it's just oh, too much no. of a headache. So he was the only one. It was all ready to go, but somebody at ITV wouldn't sign off on it. Oh. And the, the line was that it's being viewed again. It's not the sort of programme we're going to be associated with. While they had, you know, like, I'm a celebrity extra plus oh, all the unseen bits on ITV3 at the same time. Like, so Eating kangaroo's anus is fine, but Hardwick House is like, <laughs> personally <laughs> offensive to us as a company. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, wow. Like, but yeah, it takes a bit. So even in relatively recent years, they still kind of wanted to torpedo it. I, I wonder why. Why? Like, It must know, be I... somebody not wanting to put their hand up to them being the one that made the scheduling mistake. But it really yeah. was unavailable. It was almost impossible to get hold of. It was as much as I could do to get to see the Rick and Aid one before I wrote that booklet. And yeah. it's one of yeah. the last examples, along with, say, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Video Nasties and so on, of something being in the Vertical Commons banned. And that was yes. it. Whereas I think the last gasp yeah. of that was when Reservoir Dogs and True Romance were banned 
on video. But by that point, there was so much bootlegging that they got out. But Hardwick House just never surfaced until one no. of the cameramen, I think, put it on YouTube. Yeah, this is it. And then again, now, you know, now we've got the internet. It's just no chance. You're not going to ban anything. Best of luck with that. Girl said that, that. No, thank you for that bit of showbiz gossip. Right. My theory is right. Yeah. So it was kind of torpedoed. Yeah. But to go back to that point, I do think it was a bit ahead of its time because it had no laughter track, which again, a decade and a half later or so, you've got The Office, which became this colossal worldwide hit. There's lots of little things about Hardwick House, which kind of people just weren't quite ready for it, I reckon. I think you're right there, because I, looking back, I think the reason it connected with me and people and you so much was that I always had to think about in Grange Hill, I didn't really like the bits where they were in the school. The bits that really seemed close to my life were when they were going to and from school on the bus and things that happened on that. And Hardwick House is basically those bits, but in the school setting. (laughs) Because you've got, we should just say, Ed Miliband's wife, Justine, is one of the child actors in it, who eats a rat in one episode. <laughs> Not that anyone ate a rat in my school, but you know what I mean. It was, uh... Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, but I think you're absolutely right. It's just, I mean, again, it's just kind of, I think, it's showing, like, lessons. Lessons <laughs> are boring. I mean, most people are, that's not the worst bit of school. The most exciting bit of school, the bits in between. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. No, that's amazing. I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've just, I was just struck dumb. I was stunned by the fact that Ed Miliband's wife was in it as a child. That's And actually, again, you know, all the child actors, and I'm thinking, because it was made by Central TV, I'm assuming that there must have been young actors from the Central television workshop oh yes uh, yeah Pooh yeah. Lee's in it Simon Schatzberger Alison Hammond all of the ones that were on your mother wouldn't like yeah, it and things like that, that yeah that's actually quite amazing and again I do have a lot of nostalgia again for central television as a network a lot of shows which again just kind of slipped into obscurity and slipped into you know forgetfulness were made by central TV and, and I do have a sort of deep love for it and obviously you know because I'm brummy as well and appeared on central TV a number of times as a teenager on Central Weekend, I kind of me and a few school chums used to get roped in to be kind of you know teenagers who would like come and be the voice of you. Wow! But uh, it was a good gig at the time. But now I think back and it's like, oh no, we were like kind of like rather sort of naff convent school girls. Like we weren't hard or the vo- like really reflective. Of- like we weren't the voice of the streets or the voices of the youth now in hindsight it's like oh well that's probably why they asked us to do it I mean Central TV and the fact that Hardwick House is a Central TV production as well does really kind of warm my heart and I loved seeing that old 1980s Central Ident as well I really hope they do release it come on ITV come on you know well, I believe you were in Panto with one of the cast not too long ago. Well, that was it. Granville Saxton, who played Miss Fowl. Again, absolutely fantastic, amazing Vesp and villain extraordinaire. You know, he's very well loved and he's one of these actors who's done the most phenomenal things. But you might not, you might be like, oh, it's, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but you know the kind of actors who are like, oh, it's him! From, yeah, he's one yeah. of those, as opposed to like, you knowing him immediately, you're just like, oh my gosh, he was in this and this and this and Harry Potter and his life like all good TV villains, is actually like one of the most sweetest, urbane, nicest men you could meet. And actually, I did Panther with him a few years ago in Cornwall. I was playing the villain and it was the first time I'd actually played a Panto villain. So actually, he gave me like loads of really good tips. It was absolute gold. I mean, this is the thing. It's like, it, you know, it's kind of, it's a faux pas for an actor to give another actor a note. However, if you are an acting legend and have been doing it for decades, like literally everything, he was just absolute gold. But really punk as well. Like, again, very much like Adrian Emerson and Rick Mayle. He himself has a real sort of quite a punk persona. You know, he's got these great stories. Stories he told me, well, it's not my story to tell, but if you ever do run into Granville, ask him to tell you about Iggy Pop. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just ask ask him the Iggy Pop story. Brilliant stories. He's just like one of the coolest dudes. And yeah, if you want to know how to play a villain, he's your man. Well, just before we move on to your next choice, I want to see if you share my theory about, I mean, Rick and Aid, the episode with them in, whatever you think of the rest of the series, anyone listening, that is brilliant. That's fantastic. They just take over. They are loving it. Their timing is spot on. But their characters, Lenny and Tiny, are basically the forgotten installments. If you've got a long line, the characters, 
characters that are more or less the same, like Sir Richard and Lady Adrian Dangerous, Dreamy Time Escorts, Richie and Eddie, Richie, Rich and yeah. Catflock, Kevin Turpin and Keith Marshall, Rick and Vivian, obviously. I have a theory that the only explanation is they're all kind of bizarre cousins that just yes. keep meeting up in these combinations. <laughs> That's the oh, only thing. They oh, must oh be God, all that... related, but oh, some yeah. of them are more intelligent yeah. than others. Oh my gosh, like a kind of sliding doors parallel universe. Yes. All right, I totally buy into your fan theory. Yes. Yeah, I'm sold on that. Yes, absolutely. Well, this is the thing. Again, round about the time that they would have done Hardwick House, they did that episode of Blackadder Goes Forth as well, which is just sitcom perfection. Putting the parallels. I mean, again, they just give their all. I mean, whether it's in like this slightly ropey sitcom that's that seems to be forgotten or this absolute, like, you know, jewel in the crown of British comedy. Like, they just give it their all. They just, they're like, again, just absolutely fantastic. Fantastic performances. But I like that theory. Yes. Yeah, let's spread it around and let's let's kind of get other people on board. Yeah, I'm with you there, Tim. Well, we're going to move on to something slightly more wholesome now, which was actually on in a time slot just before a show where a lot of people complained about Hardwick House when those two episodes were on. But it's a lot more tranquil. It's a lot more peaceful. This theme music haunts me, and as we'll find out, it's haunted other people. So let's make it haunt you too. to 11 seared into my memory that deb what was 5 to 11 5 to 11 was a real curiosity it was broadcast on bbc one at 5 to 11 in the morning i suppose it was a televisual version of thought for the day and it would have you know an actor or a theologian or poet or someone like that reading a piece of poetry or you know sort of sharing sharing musings it was supposed to be tranquil, but I just, as a child, I just found it unbearably creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I found it really, I just found it very, very, I found it quite creepy. And it, it, it's just so peculiar. Everything about it was peculiar. I mean, it would just come on at 10.55 in the morning. Just, I can't quite remember or not whether, I don't think it would come on during the school holidays. So again, I'm just wondering, it probably, maybe the reason why I experienced this programme was because I was off sick. So again, that kind of adds to the creepiness of it. Because if you're not feeling well, and rather, you know, you're just kind of watching TV at this random time of day. Just such a strange show. I mean, this is how I got to be here talking to you Tim because it's one of those things you kind of squirrel away in the back of your consciousness and then you happened to you were tweeting about obscure British telly which you do brilliantly but you mentioned 5 to 11 and generally something just clicks and it's like I suppose it's like regression therapy but obviously without being sinister or maybe a bit sinister I don't know but it was like regression therapy I was like oh my gosh I remember that and yeah and then literally I just kind of went out this wormhole of this is something that oh wow what a weird little show that was five minutes a day like Jack and Nori, but without any narrative or plot or, or entertainment value. <laughs> oh, they might bring back five to eleven, and then I'll never ever be asked on if I say. Yeah, it was just such a creepy little curiosity. I'm so glad that you remember it as well. Well, I do. And you're not alone because I should say that not too long ago, previous guest Ray Earl sent me a message saying, I've had this theme stuck in my head all day. It's driving me insane. I don't know what it is. And I played the sound file of her singing it. And it was do, 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 do. And yes, that's five to 11. But I can answer, yes, it was on in the holidays. But the difference was, I mean, normally when it was on, it would be somebody like Emma Thompson or Philip Maddock or Annette Crosby, you know, reading a thing where they go, may I have a word, God, about the waste we make or something like that. But they had school kids in the school holidays. Well, this is it. And the theme tune itself, I found, again, I found quite mournful. Like the Hardwick House theme tune, absolute bop. Five to 11, it's just like, that's just to make you contemplate your own mortality. Just, and I think that era is what, I think during the 1980s, I've often spoken on this, that the 1980s was quite a scary decade anyway for kids. So yeah, that mournful theme tune, that was part of the experience. And just the aesthetic as well. I mean, again, TV studio aesthetic, especially if you're kind of making lower budget telly, wasn't great. It was not the golden age of sort of TV backdrop design but it was all lots of sort of muted beiges and greys and like floral arrangements with loads of baby's breath which again 
and kind of adds to the funeral home kind of vibe. And it is very much like waking up from a head injury or something. And I don't say that lightly. <laughs> Having had woken up, woken up from head injuries or waking up from anaesthetic or, you know, anaesthesia, it's, it's, it's like, you know, that slightly eerie feeling like, like what, what's going on? Why are you talking to me like this? You know, the people present that, hello. You know, and as you say, like, yes, let's talk to God about, you know, what we're doing to the world. And sometimes there'd be illustrations as well. But again, not like Jack and Laurie, just like, oh, I don't, I don't know. It's even just thinking about it now, I'm quite creeped out about it. But again, going back to that, I don't want to slate it too much because I think now, actually now as an actor, and again, actors having had this really rough 18 months. So, you know, we're all, we're available. We're aggressively available you know 5 to 11 was on telly now I would be asking my agent to like like actually harass them to get me on there because it's an actor's dream I imagine that you would probably if you were shooting the whole week you know they would get the same actor to do the whole week of reflections and it is just you know fixed camera and just you talking literally that is a thespian's dream put your best RSC voice on and literally just <laughs> just speak poetry at the nation you know regardless of who was watching that sounds like a pretty neat deal i'd quite like that well i think you're right it did have that kind of dislocated ambience and i think the reason for that is i mean do you remember the title graphics or not because i couldn't find them online but it had sort of it was like a powerpoint presentation of things like yeah, you know flowers it. and <laughs> an italian church and a gorilla for some reason you know that's really relaxing isn't it it's very 80s this was a whole era of things like you know you get albums or things like Pampite moods or Pampite yes, carpenters or they never did i wanted to do Pan Weller, which is Paul Weller songs on the pan pipes. It's that whole thing of, you know, so 80s, like, here's how you relax. It's being sold to you and you like it and you get on with it. It wasn't like now where you can get apps for guided meditations on. It was like, you know, very Thatcherite thing. Here's the answer to your problems. Now get back to work. And 5 to 11 was kind of part of that, really. Well, yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, you you could buy these hideously overpriced cassettes, box sets, which had things like like, you know, dolphins wailing and rainforest sounds and things like that. I mean, you know, I, I, it must have been that. But again, it was very much kind of relax now, damn it. You know, it's <laughs> as opposed to something that was very sort of nurturing or focusing on mental health. And like I said, it's incredible the things that kind of are meant to be, you know, kind of relaxing or meant to be sort of enriching. But the whole thing was just really, really creepy. That's my overwhelming memory of it. Yeah. And that theme tune. Yeah. I haven't heard that for a long time. I couldn't find I'm glad that you found the theme tune. I'll look forward to uh, having. Well, no, I don't look forward to listening to that. But. <laughs> Yeah, it'll take me back. But I just remember thinking it was so mournful. Yeah, and the title sequence and just everything about it. It was just such a curious five minutes. Well, the other thing about it was that when it was on in the school holidays, I mean, which, where you had the weird thing of, you know, you'd have the early broom couple presenters like Andy Crane introducing yeah. it because it was the end of the children's programmes in the morning. It was like a full stop to it. So on the other side of it, you got open air, which is where, you know, people phoned up saying, I was disgusted that ITV broadcast hail and pace microwaving the spitting image puppet of David Steele. <laughs> And Clive James laughed at it. it. It was that sort of thing. And it was kind of, you know, you'd had your... Nobody wanted Lassie, but you'd had that. You'd had Battle of the Planets, the Monkeys. But first this, the magazine show that nobody remembers. And it was kind of, time's up, off you go. This is adult's time now. And here's a gorilla to scare you off. Oh, right. Well, you know what? That puts things into perspective. Oh, my gosh. Like, literally, you saved money on me getting a therapist. Obviously, that was maybe disappointing <laughs> that the children's programs had ended and then you sort of still watching you're not over that's it then oh it's five <laughs> right again i am just very very pleased that other people remember it though not for not because like i thought it was like my favorite show or anything like that. i'm just glad that people are witness can contest that this is a thing it happened well i'm going to see you do your next choice as a full stop for five to eleven to finally get revenge on it because this is about as far removed from kind of tranquil pan pipes as you can get
Okay, that's a bit of a record called How Can the Labouring Man Find Time for Self-Culture by Martini Ranch, which I'll admit, I didn't actually really know until you mentioned it. Deb, what's the story here? I don't know how I came across this record. I, I had it. I don't know how, I don't know whether I'd inherited it from my older brother who'd moved out years previously. I don't know if I'd found it in the drama school cupboard. It's, I can't remember. Somehow, in the early 1990s, I came to be in possession of this seven-inch single by Martini Ranch, How Can the Labouring Man Find Time for Self-Culture? I don't know how I came to have it. You know, if I was conspiracy theorist, I'd say the aliens gave it to me, but I played it. Again, this is before everything 80s kind of became really, really trendy again, and people were like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is so cool. But yeah, I played it not having a clue what I was going to hear, but I, I just found, I found it really, really engaging. It's unlike any, I can't compare it to any other record. And again, that can either go two ways. That can either be turn out to be a massive hit or just kind of sink into obscurity and, and sadly the latter happened to this the sound for me is just a musical representation of the year 1984 now i know that the single came out in 1988 so that was probably what the problem was that it was kind of you know <laughs> it was kind of behind its time everything about it i just kind of found really 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 engaged and i couldn't really share it with anyone because it was just like oh like for a start it Again, it was the early 1990s. Unless you were playing like house music and you were like a proper DJ, people weren't into vinyl and things like that. So I kind of like play it and like really enjoy it. But even if like, you know, I was like, I'd, I'd put it on a mixtape for a friend. It'd be like, what the bloody hell's this? Like, what is this? Like, it's Pony. I just really, really enjoy this record and I, I still listen to it. I find the cover art really engaging. Again, it's just this, you know, really striking image that looks a little bit kind of metropolis, I suppose. A bit reminiscent of that. The pretentious name. Everything about this record is just, I just find it really engaged. And again, just really, really curious. What did you think of? I quite liked it. I mean, I thought it was part of that kind of post-Talking Heads thing that never really took yeah. off over here. Like, you know, with bands like the Rainmakers and R.E.M., where they all look like, yeah. you know, the extra people you get on Whose Lines It Anyway in America. <laughs> yeah. They had that look and that aesthetic. But did you know who the band actually were? Because I'm amazed more people haven't heard of them. Well, this is the thing. I, I wasn't until literally just the other day I found it with Bill Pack. Yes! Which is like mind blown, but I never made that connection at all. It seems Crazy. to be completely forgotten that he did it. And I was trying to think what the equivalent <laughs> would have been over here. It would have been like, not really Gary Oldman, because he did do those demos with David Bowie that never went anywhere. So you can't really count it. But if Tim Roth had done an album, this kind of really weird, abstract, arty album, kind of post Smith's thing. Or, no, yeah. it'd be more like post, I don't know, the Diagram Brothers or somebody like that, a certain yeah, ratio, yeah. you know, somebody a bit odder, like a factory records thing and it had been forgotten yeah. about it's just so yeah. odd and when you consider that at the same time Mickey Rourke was doing that dreadful rap on Shining Star by David Bowie where it basically does the whiz bit theme in the middle of it that you know Bill Paxton it was already a name by then he'd been in The Terminator and Predator and Weird Science and he did this record yeah. yeah it's such an odd thing to do at that point in your career but again I can only imagine that it was a labour of love for him you're so right with the talking heads parallel and again I kind of had a little look around and, and I've seen like on American forums so I think maybe our American friends kind of remember it more or maybe we'd be more likely to kind of you know if you dropped it in conversation they'd be like oh yeah I remember that yeah it just completely just kind of it didn't even register over here which I think is really strange yeah considering who's in the bands who's connected with it it's just that's odd in itself and it had the potential to do well because there was a big yeah. budget video with loads of his kind of Hollywood mates in like Anthony Michael Hall's in it Judge Reinhold I believe oh. Catherine Bigelow is in it Adrian Pastar is in actually he might be in the second singles video but you know and also it was on Sire Records who were a really weird label where you know they, they had people like Madonna and Nick Kamen and Talking yeah. Heads and the Pretenders and so on but they had to think about they kept trying to like yeah. make really weird abstract acts into big names like I mean if you look at their roster in the 80s there's Boys Wonder that kind of proto Britpop band there's yeah. Ann yeah. Dorsey who obviously worked with David Bowie for a long time years later deborah harry when she went solo my bloody valentine yeah. ride the soup dragons obviously no they were doing the american distribution yeah, for them yeah. the revolting cocks were on sire at one point which i i <laughs> find hard to believe i mean if you've not heard them and you're of a sensitive disposition don't but somebody <laughs> thought obviously we can corner the mtv market with them and obviously yeah. they didn't but they, they clearly have big hopes martini ranch clearly 
clearly because, you know, they wouldn't have invested all of that money and time and effort into pushing this. It makes me feel kind of wistful as well for that particular time, because I think probably late 80s going into the 90s, probably the last decade where you could actually be experimental and they'd say, hey, great, what's this? Oh, my gosh, the, the revolting cats. Let's just give them a go. Because now, you know, we live in a time and without wanting to sound like, you know, like an old fogey, it is like, you know, it's so homogenized now and it's so completely sort of stage managed and there's no room for any error and everything has become so formulaic it kind of it makes me think oh you know that was they gave it a go they gave it a go I mean it didn't quite work but again that is art that is true art isn't it you know you kind of you you try it you see how it comes out you can tell as well they were just making it that I think that record is it was just made and it was just written and this is what we what we're doing we're not trying to make it sound like anything else I mean the fact that I, I rather uncharitably said that or oh, maybe it was kind of it sounded like an earlier 80s track but released in the later 80s but again that in itself is that they're obviously not trying to make it into a certain sound or making it sound like anything else this was just something authentic that they wanted to do I really appreciate that and it's not like anything else that I was listening to at that time. I just thought the whole sound was just really cool. Yeah. And I, I, I would invite anyone to just kind of check it out and respond to it and tweet me what you think. I mean, I've waited decades to talk to another person about this track who's actually listened to it, not going, what the bloody hell's this then? I'm quite keen to hear the whole album now, which I've not heard, because mm. there is always value in giving a bit of room to experiment to somebody who still wants to have success at the end of the day. And yeah, they're not going to just like deliver an album's length worth <laughs> of scraping sounds or something. It, it kind I'm of reminds like... me of, do you know about Mariah Carey's grunge album? You're pulling my leg. Absolutely not. In about, I think You're it was 1993, no. she formed anonymously a grunge band called Chick who recorded an oh, album you... that... She used a pseudonym and it was really well reviewed at the time, but nobody knew it was out. It was only when she did the autobiography, she said, oh yeah, and that's why we did the Chick album and blah, blah, blah. And I had a laugh noticing it was well reviewed by the sort of people who, you know, call me Plastic Soul or whatever. Hey, I have to check this out. Oh my, Tim, you literally right. Okay, I'm on a quest now. I'm writing this. (laughs) I must know. I must, I simply must know. This is, this is all new to me. I have no idea. So, I mean, round about the time, so I'm imagining that, that she did this project round about the time that Courtney Love was doing things like Hole and there was things like... Yeah, it was exactly yeah. around that time. And people like L7 and stuff. That's awesome. Oh, Mariah, please, like, revive your grunge career. This would be just awesome. I don't think she actually did an L7, though, which is a phrase that will only mean anything to anyone <laughs> of a certain age. But yeah. I, I didn't think I was ever going to say that, say, say Mariah Carey and L7 in the same... <laughs> in the same sense. But there we go. Again, I think that's a really... That is a... A wonderful thing and again it does harken back to a time when even though again it was a you know, big business and big money and lots invested but people still wanted to experiment and have a little play around with things and sort of give things a chance to kind of grow and ferment I mean that warms my cockles there that Mariah did a grunge album good for her good for her <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to move on to a very, very different piece of music now to introduce your next choice. I can't think of any other way of introducing it, so here we go. Snacks, a 1990 Codemasters game coded by the Oliver Twins, which Deb, I believe you described as slams. Yeah, yeah. I love it. He was actually reviewed in games magazines for having really, really good music. And yeah, it does slam. And it's just very joyous. And I think it just sort of, it does kind of encapsulate everything that's kind of good about video games, especially in that era as well. Like Quick Snacks, I played on the Amstrad 464. I got it 1989. So I got it for my 10th birthday. Absolutely love that computer. I mean, it was, okay. <laughs> oh God, I, I sound like, I must sound like a medieval villager to like any of the listeners who are under 25, but this was cutting edge. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a beautiful computer. It was kind of, you know, kind of beige color, which again was a real novelty then. I 
have this beige colour computer with full colour screen and kind of have all this 8-bit, you know, these pixels, which at the time, again, looking at it now, you think, oh, hang on, this is just little, <laughs> these are just little blobs, you know, it's little spongy. But at the time, I was like, absolutely, yeah, this is Dizzy the Egg. and He's got a save Daisy and you, you're absolutely immersed in it in a way that I, I don't know. I think I'm not a gamer now, which is why, and I, apologies to gamers, I do sound like a grandma technophobe now because I don't, I'm not a gamer now, but there's something about these kind of early games which just completely immerse you. And I think because the graphics leave a lot to be desired and they're kind of, you know, some of them are kind of a bit ropey and they're literally just a few pixels arranged in a certain way, you do still have to make these kind of leaps in imagination to immerse yourself in the game in a way that you might not, you might not now. Yeah, quick snacks. I just have such fond memories of it. I played it, I did play it, I think for 12 hours straight one time in the summer holiday yeah in that summer holidays yeah so the summer holidays 1990 I think I played it like for 12 hours straight eight o'clock in the morning (laughs) I think my parents started to get a bit worried like what is she doing but I actually even got like oh gosh what's that thing that white finger that you get like it's like like my fingers like wobbling (laughs) I started getting like white finger because I was kind of because I was playing it so much but it's just it was just really engaging the graphics you know, I think at the time, you know, we know rather sort of famously that the games industry didn't really gear things towards girls. But I do think, I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I wasn't a tomboy, but I, but I wasn't really sort of a girly girl. But I think there's something about the aesthetics of Quick Snats which really appealed to me. I think the two characters, the fact that it was kind of even the violence in it. I mean, again, we were just on the cusp of that whole sort of panic about violent video games, which seems hilarious to me now because look at the graphics. Oh, just the absolute hysteria back then of just, oh my gosh, it's what will it do to the children? It's not going to do anything to the children. It's literally just blobs on a screen. Quick stats, even the violence of it, sort of squashing things or, you know, sort of squashing the little critters, which seems sort of quite nice. It was like, you know, it wasn't like kind of like, oh, it wasn't like Pac-Man was just like violent. You know, there was ghosts, there was little pills. It was just, no, it's like quick snacks. It had like, you know, this absolute bop like, going on. You know, you had to collect watermelons or raspberries, that kind of thing. You know, and even like the little critters, they were like kind of, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to try and stop your quest. But no, Dizzy the Egg would squash them. And it was cool. The whole thing was just kind of charming. Well, that's what Codemasters did really well, was that I mean, prior to them, budget computer games, you got what you paid for generally. Yeah. There were, you know, there were a couple look at ones like i remember me liking one man and his droids which i think was a mastertronic one which is basically a kind of alien sheep herding <laughs> game but mostly they didn't even work <laughs> properly most of the time and they no, had like line no, graphics but codemasters put really funky attractive shiny yeah, graphics that's what i remember they somehow looked shiny on the spectrum which i don't get at all and they were often very simple games in concept but they made them really addictive. Their thing seemed to be, people are paying money for this. They deserve to get something for their money. And I loved, did you have one that they did called Rockstar at My Hamster? No, I didn't Which, have that. It was a strategy game where you had to build a band from all these, like, probably quite actionable caricatures of, like, actual pop stars. Like, <laughs> there was Dorisey and Mince and Jack Michelson and people like that. And the thing was, you had to promote them, like, by messing with the tabloids on the feeding stories, arranging outrageous stunts on stage, but they could be killed by, you know, the shock of the headline or whatever. (laughs) And everything about it was so subversive as well. All the names of the other bands were, like, Barb's at Society and the pop charts and so on. It was hilarious. I played that for hours and hours and I must have spent probably about three quid on it in 1989 or something and it was worth every penny so many times over and how often can you say that these days this is it It, it, yeah this is it but again you're absolutely right Codemasters games they were just they were just entertaining they were just was it the Oliver Twins yes yeah they were like the Simon Cowell of (laughs) you know cheap computer games in the late and I hope they don't I hope you're not listening and like take that as a as I mean that as the compliment it's supposed to be but again it's just it was great playing these games I mean I feel like I've really missed out I would have loved to have played the Rockstar at my hamster is that a reference to Freddy Star yes it is yeah because there's a a lot of tabloid send-ups in it yes I mean, that, but again, there's, there's something very lovely about these Codemasters games that kind of have a very sort of a, a very British feel. 
yeah, I mean, you know, I know we kind of you know, went on to sort of have Nintendo and Sega and stuff like that. It became sort of very international. And it's very sort of American or Japanese. But there's something very British about the humour and the premise and just all of these games. I mean, I think back to there was so many games that I played on Amstrad. But again, none of them really stuck the way Quick Snacks did. I mean, it, like Paperboy, that was a bit kind of... You played, but everyone played Paperboy. Everyone played. Well, they played Paperboy on First Class, that children's BBC game show was one of the rounds on it. So oh, everyone knew Paperboy. That was, yeah, so it's just, that was very kind of, well, I don't know, I mean, again, it's like, that was the one up from Telly Tennis now. But yeah, there's something, you know, bravo Codemasters, just, there was something really enjoyable about it and very accessible to everyone. And again, now I love the fact that, you know, sort of gaming is something for everybody. And I love the fact that the original gamers are middle-aged now. So people are playing games with their parents and their grandparents, which I think is amazing. You know, when we played, there's something that was very new and it was kind of people didn't really understand it and didn't really kind of have much of a history yet. But I really love the fact that Codemasters made it accessible and enjoyable. And, you know, I enjoyed it. I mean, out of all my friends at school, I think I was probably at the time, I think I was the only I went to an all girls convent school. So I was like the only girl who was probably into playing games. But again, it was something that, you know, was really, really appealing to me. And I have really warm, warm memories of it. And again, you know, people always criticise video games for kind of not having a heart and, you know, sort of not appealing to our more baser instincts. But I would argue that, you know, it's like Quicksack. It's not a great memory. And belting music as well, which is such a rare commodity, because it sounds like it was your equivalent of Turbo with Spree on the ZX Spectrum. I never wanted to go past the start screen because it had that amazing kind of... Like, yeah. Like the music from the American action series, like Street Hawk or something. Yes. And I just yes. listened to that yeah. on a loop without actually oh, playing yeah. the game, yeah. which I loved because yeah. it was a disreputable driving game, you know, charging <laughs> around New York. But yeah, the music. Why couldn't that have gone on throughout yeah. the game? That would have been a match made in heaven, really. Yes. What else had absolutely slapping music? Burning Rubber, which was the game that came with the Amstrad 464. Gameplay was all right. But the, as you say, the theme tune for Burning Rubber again just that was oh that was just brilliant it was the golden age of the theme tune i mean you know we don't put so much emphasis on having a theme for things nowadays and again it's like that is brilliant you know it adds to the whole i mean that was the reason why you know kind of i was a massive fan of paperboy because there's no music that could have done with a theme tune I wonder what we could have had. Well, to move into your next choice, I've mentioned many times on here the game of Paul McCartney's Give My Regards to Broad Street, which is basically, I don't know if you've ever played that, but you're Paul, you go to a tube station, you wait for the musicians to turn up, and that's it. That's all there is to it. But even though people are doing movie tying games that cheap, no one would ever have done one based on your next no. choice. And we're about to find out why. So, you've done a summer season at Minehead Butlins. That must have been fun, fun, fun. Your name is? Mavis Davis. I'll have to go for a start. What's wrong with the voice? Clothes, hair, uh, and the arse. Do you think she would have won any of those awards without me? Do you think she'd be anyone without me? Cobain, Lennon, Elvis all died prematurely and all their record sales rocketed. Really? Do you want someone done in or something? <laughs> no, 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 I'm just interested. We can't be called that. Oh, Clint. Well, there's a real vindictiveness about the level of destruction. I'm betting on an obsessed fan. Oh, good. Idea, Inspector. What sort of arrangements have you made for Miss Dolan's security while she's on tour? Don't worry about that, Inspector. I'm hiring a top group of security men. Your last client was, in fact, killed. You're looking at me. You're hired. <laughs> Bollocks. Oh, too much. Cynthia! You're looking great. Do you really mean that? Not really, no. Would you do something for me, please? Will you kick the ever-loving shit out of this limey prick? Are you feeling? Well, I don't have a look. I'm gonna be old. Soon. Not necessarily. You kill her. I get rich. You get paid. Okay. Hasta la vista. Baby. No! Rock and roll. 
okay, that was the trailer for Bring Me the Head of Mavis Davis, a film that I remember going to see in the cinema, but I don't remember anything about it. Deb, fill me in. You were so lucky. By the time I try, like very much in the vein of Hardwick has, by the time I managed to actually find a cinema that was showing it, they'd pulled it, so I couldn't actually even see it. I think it was in the cinemas for like a week. Bring Me the Head, so I did actually, again, I didn't see it until a few years later when it came out on VH, yeah, I think it was VHS that I got it on. Bring Me the Head of Mavis Davis is a feature film starring Rick Mail and Jane Horrocks. Jane Horrocks plays an ageing pop diva and Rick Mail plays her rather shady manager who comes to the conclusion that if she's dead, he actually would make more money from her, which is very sad and morbid, but actually true. You know, again, like Elvis and latterly Michael Jackson, a lot of recording artists make a huge amount of money posthumously. So he comes up with this horrible plan to try and bump her off. Um, so that's the premise of the film. And again, at the time, I remember it just being absolutely panned, like slated. I, I remember watching, was it Movie Watch or something? But I remember like watching, it was like a review show on Channel 4. And I already made up my mind I was going to see it because it had Rick Mail in it. I loved Rick Mail. But a woman actually said like, and she wasn't even being ironic or laughing or anything. She was like, this is the worst film I have ever seen. And she looked personally affronted. <laughs> <laughs> And my heart kind of sank, which is kind of probably why I put off for a while actually seeing it. I wanted to see it in the cinema. So you were so lucky. You must have seen it as soon as it came out. How did you manage that? Pretty much, because I used to go and see like any film that you know, looked like <laughs> it wasn't quite first division, shall we say, because there was okay. a, a beloved local cinema, which hasn't existed for a long time, called the 051. It used to take, because they couldn't get all the blockbusters, all yeah. the things that, you know, were on the lower rungs like that's where before it took off i saw reservoir <laughs> dogs there things like yeah. shortcuts before that started winning awards but also there will be things right. like this solitaire for two which is a i'll come back to in a minute that was not a good film but any kind of british <laughs> film really i saw small faces right. there which i loved and i still love the young poisoner's handbook all kinds of things like that and this was on there and i know i went to see it i just don't remember anything about it and it's a rick mail film i don't remember anything about it so i mean that was the massive draw but then also, I mean, brilliant talent there because it had Mark Warren in it as well. As I said before, Jane Horrocks, who is just amazing. And oh, have I, oh gosh, how do I say his son? Danny Aiello. Oh my gosh, have I said his name wrong? I'm going to look like a right donut. You know, top flight names. And again, it's not any of the performances. I mean, this is me. You see, I'm joining, you know, I'm kind of closing ranks with the actors. No, it wasn't the actors. I think the film, it shouldn't have been a feature film. I think it would have worked really well as a one-off BBC drama, like some kind of like one-off Christmas special or something like that. Or maybe as an episode of, it's an extended episode of Rick Mail Presents. And it should have been that as opposed to a feature film, because <laughs> I think they kind of it was a bit over ambitious. But actually, I actually really love the film. Um, I've not really heard of it kind of having a bit of a cult following. I mean, usually with films like that probably don't do so well commercially. But because, you know, the people in it will have such a strong fan base, it kind of gets a bit of a cult following. I don't know. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't really come across anyone who remembers it. Even like died in the wool Rick Mail fans kind of tend to sort of pass it over. But I think he, you know, he's great in it. I think he's, I think he's, he's great in it. It's got some great songs as well. I mean, Jane Horrocks, again, it is a, a brilliant showcase for her because she's got this fantastic voice. But yeah, the songs in it are great. And I think maybe the premise, is a bit mean-spirited and maybe again like british people will get it like drop dead fred we get it you know it kind of our sense of humor can be mean-spirited but but i think people might just think oh my gosh this is hideous this man is trying to murder this woman and oh it's just so awful and, and maybe because rick mail is so machiavellian in it you don't really empathize with him but you can still enjoy kind of him being foiled very much like sort of the wily e. coyote you know it's like kind of yeah you, you're so gonna fail and you're so horrible but you are really and mark warren is brilliant as the dozy hitman when do you ever hear that the 
the character of a hitman is delightful, but I just find his performance really delightful in that. Well, I think there's three reasons it didn't work, really. The first yeah. is, there's a lot of films around that time, British comedy films, that I think, my theory is, they were rushed into production after Four Weddings and a Funeral was a hit without being thought through properly. And this might originally have yeah. been a TV script, to be honest, and mm-hmm. somebody said, here's a big load of money, do it as a film, because you've got things like, at one extreme, you've got Solitaire for Two, which is a great premise for a film, but they don't do anything with it. I think that's never even been on DVD. It is that bad. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got What Happened to Harold Smith, which is a brilliant film, but there's just something about it doesn't quite hit the mark. Something stopped it from really taking off. And you can see that when you're watching it. And in the middle, you've got things like This Year's Love, which is a film that exists. I'm sure I saw that, but I can't remember anything about it. Well, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah, the fact it exists. My second thing is, Rick gives it 110% as always. I think he turned up and anything he was asked to do, he would give it his all and be the best thing in it. But it's a really weird time when you look at his credits. Around then, he's not doing very much no, it's immediately after. I don't know if this is linked, but when he was in cellmate to Stephen Fry, and yeah. Stephen Fry walked out, and apparently yeah. that did affect Rick quite badly. And there's a couple of years where he's not really doing anything that successful. It's only about 18 months to two years, but still, this comes in the middle of it, which yeah. might be relevant. But the other thing is, people just hate British films anyway. I mean, I can say that yeah. with some certainty, because I recently went yeah. to see... Have you seen Off the Rails? No. Yeah, what is it? It's actually in cinemas at the moment. Moment. It's Sally Phillips yeah. and a couple of other people playing basically some estranged university friends who were reunited on a road trip round Europe as, you know, 50-something women. It's all about them, you know, trying to relive their youth and realising they're embarrassing oh, okay. and so on. But the thing is, it got really slagged off by everyone, apart from Mark Kermode, who seemed to quite like it. But people oh. saying, there's no depth to it, there's no depth. And I saw, I just saw a funny film that was lightweight, yeah. a time when people are just coming out of lockdown and so on. You don't want to go to the cinema to see something about bearing your soul and I really liked it I thought it, you know it wasn't Citizen Kane but it was good for what it was but people are just against British films they find any reason like that to attack them this is the thing I mean it does I'm going to check it out and also Sally Phillips is a walking seal of policy so sold so I will, I will check that but this is the thing I mean yeah people do hate British films because we do things like and again I just we do things like parting shots yes which like <laughs> Like with the head of Mavis Davis has arguably even more stellar lineup, but what an absolute like pile of cack that film is. Like it was a film that's so cack that I actually actively got angry <laughs> with it. And I think that kind of encapsulates the worst of British films. And I think sometimes we make films sometimes that are so bad that it actually makes people have personal vendettas against British films. So for every four weddings and a funeral, <laughs> there's a parting shot which actually kind of takes us back ten paces. Well, it's funny you should say that because released almost at the same time as this was Fierce Creatures, yeah. which is basically John Cleese blowing his nose on a lot of money. Everyone involved in that should have apologised for the way they talked it up because it's a competent oh, wow. film. It is not the new fish called Wonder, which they made out it was. But yeah. a couple of months after that, the full Monty comes out, which really does show everything oh, up because I mean I'm sure part of the reason it took off as much as it did was that you know it was immediately after that. Diana and people wanted cheering up but that is a solidly good comedy film and anything that wasn't quite as good as that is going to be found wanting and poor old bring me there the Mavis Davis was still hovering around at that point I mean this is the thing I think it's kind of if you are gonna have a film that sucks it had better like absolutely suck and be the worst thing that anyone's seen so at least then there's a kind of you know badge of honour that you sat through it but if you're just doing something that's just kind of mediocre that that's actually almost like a greater sin in a way because it's like literally this is an hour and a half of my life how dare you yeah it's sad in a way when you and uh, that's the saddest thing as well when you're you know you're sitting there you really want to like something I mean I know I'd make a really lousy critic because I do err on the side of liking things I am the kind of person who just just loves the shit out of everything until proven otherwise so if I really don't like something it's because like it is just really bad because I'm I tried to make life a bit like a middle class child's birthday party everyone wins 
what goes over the front. Bring me the head of Mavis Davis. It's not a good film. It's not a bad film. There are some great, there's some really good bits to it. I was going to say there's some great bits, but not great. But it's entertaining. It sounds to me a bit like the Sally Phillips film you just told me about. It's just silly. And I think that's the thing. It's, it's sometimes you can, you can just have something that's just a confection. It's just silly, silliness for silliness sake. And that's fine. And I think if you start analysing it, it just completely falls flat. I didn't mean for this to turn into like literally the Rick Mail loving hour, but you know, I mean, it's I quite think, welcome. Well, this is it. I can think of worse ways to spend an hour. I mean, it shows up kind of like the diversity of his career and how much I think I think he's very much he and Aid Edmondson are very much emblazoned on the consciousness of a lot of people. I think uh, there's very few performers that you can watch as a child on Jack and Ori or on Grim Tales and then also watch, you know, kind of you know, very rude adult content and watching the new steps. So clearly something very special there. Bring me the head of Mavis Davis check it out I would definitely say to anyone who's not seen it it's worth a watch maybe have a couple of margaritas because that will improve the viewing of it as well okay well I can't <laughs> think of any way of getting into your last choice and I don't even actually there's no way of finding an actual clip from it either so here's something no, kind I... of vaguely aligned that I'll come back to why I've used this in a minute ten children go to Miss King's nursery school there they are drinking their milk George and Sandra Caroline and Annie, Scott and Louise, Kevin and Mary, Tony and Cheng. Now you watch everybody arriving at Miss King's and then I'll tell you a story of what happened one day. Miss King and her class from the late 70s Watch with Mother show How Do You Do and I've used that to introduce Kate's Party by Joan Solomon, Hamish Hamilton 1978. Deb, I've never read this, what is it? Kate's Party is one of a series of books for the under 10s. They're hardback picture books but they sort of just tell a really simple story of kids, I think they just like live in South East London in the late 70s and it just kind of just gives you like little stories from their lives so you know it's almost like, I'd liken the book it's almost like Seinfeld for kids because if you say what happens in these books I couldn't tell you there's a series of this Shabnam's Day Out and I think there's another one about a young lad called Baron but I can't remember the name of it but Kate's party really sticks in my mind as just being something that's just really lovely and really wholesome and I remember finding it in the bookshelf of my school library in primary school the cover it looks almost kind of gothic actually the cover doesn't have anything like that would actually sort of appeal to a child well even though it does have a child on the front carrying a birthday cake the colours are really muted it's quite dark it doesn't look like a book about a party that would appeal to children really it's actually just one of the sweetest and loveliest stories it tells the narrative of a young girl called Kate who's having her party but it actually is telling you about her party guests and them getting ready to come to her birthday party and I imagine she's probably turning seven or eight so it starts off it's like a Saturday morning there's a brother and sister Beren and Montrese and they live with their mum in a flat. It's literally just them kind of like just hanging out. So clearly Joan Solomon, is, I think she's come up with the story and then kind of, I imagine it must have been written the way photo love stories must have been done at the time. Because you'd have to come up with the story first and then kind of stage the pictures around the story. Yeah, they're a to, bit to, like a Twitter with... thread, these books. Yeah, they are. They, they absolutely are. Oh my gosh, yeah. They're just kind of hanging out in their pants or, you know, I'm, I'm sure someone was in their vest. Which again, raises lots of questions. It was the late 70s. People didn't really think anything of it if people were just kind of, if kids were just there in their vest and pants, as opposed to now where people would frown and say, let's not publish that. But yeah, and one thing that really, really kind of stuck with me is that Monterey's mum decides to comb her hair. She's a young, I'm assuming Afro-Caribbean girl who looks very similar to me at that age. And there's a part in the book where her mum's Afro-combing her hair and she starts crying because it really hurts because 
because having Afro hair, you know, if if you kind of comb it without it being moisturised, if your mum's there yanking it, that is literally a rite of passage of having an Afro. And I just remember that hitting me right between the eyes at that age, thinking, oh, wow, like she has hair just like mine. Now, I know kind of with our 2021 hats on, you'd say, well, yeah, this is wonderful because, you know, it's and it is wonderful, you know, and it is representation. But I didn't think at the time, I didn't sit there going, oh, wow, look, here's another inner city black child just like me. It wasn't that kind of road to Damascus kind of moment. It was just something that just kind of really kind of resonated with me. And then I just kind of moved on and went on to enjoy the rest of the book. Now in hindsight, as an adult, looking back at these books and looking at the story of Kate's party and then Shabnam's Day Out, which basically just a young girl going somewhere with her family uh, and she's British Pakistani and just and it says little, and little things, little and again, it makes, um, you know, a little comment about her Shawa Kameez, but it's not done in a way that kind of, oh, look, you know, look at this Afro hair or look at this Shawa Kameez. It's literally just, oh, well, look, you know, this is, you know, family getting ready to go out on a day trip. And here's just a point of cultural difference. But it doesn't say it as here's a point of cultural difference. It's just, oh, well, this is just what they do. I think there's just something really lovely about that. That really just warms my heart. And I would love for kids today to have that same experience where it's just something where, you know, you can just appreciate. Oh, wow. Like, oh, I do this. Oh, well, you do that. Oh, OK. Well, my my family are this. And well, my family are that. Oh, wow. You know, that's that's really interesting. But actually just still look at all these differences and appreciate them, but still just come together as a collective and just have a nice time. Does that sound really cheesy? Not at all, because it is fascinating that... No, I, get, I, I feel really emotionally invested in this. And I do, and I'm really mindful. I don't want to sound trite, but, you know, I, I really, I wish I could, like, kind of get that, that, that essence of that and bottle it and then just distribute it amongst people today. I think we kind of, in some ways, we do kind of need to get back to that because it, it's not, it's not kind of done in a clunky, clumsy way where it's like, you know, I mean, I've seen books, you know, if I'm teaching drama in schools uh, sometimes, and sometimes you see books and materials and it's like, yeah. Yes, we can see that this is, you know, this is the urban area. We need to do something that's really, you know, kind of very much focused on, you know, a certain narrative. And in doing that, even though the intention is really, you know, it's it's a good intention, but it, it kind of does alienate people because it's kind of it, it's still kind of highlighting the otherness of people. Whereas Kate's party and all the other books in Joan Solomon's series, you recognise, you take notice of the otherness of people or you take notice of people's differences. But it's just, that's, that's just all it is. You're just literally just taking notice of it and moving on and then actually concentrating on what we've got together as a collective. Because, you know, after the show The Getting Ready of Baron and Montreux, again, if you read it, you might think, oh, Deb, this is really boring. But it's not. It's just so charming and so lovely. They get ready. They go to their mum, takes them around. I think Kate lives in the same block of flats, I think. She lives like, yeah, so her mum, go, they go down the lift, Kate's flat, and, you know, there's a bunch of other kids there from their class, and they play games, and, you know, they have cake, and they have jelly and ice cream, and they just have a lovely time, and again, that just warms my heart so much, you know, because it's only now as an adult, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, all the kids at that party, like, all had different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, you know, presumably different religions and things like that. But that's not mentioned, but I think that's quite lovely for that. It's literally just, well, here's a bunch of kids just having a lovely time, and that's why I always remember these books. And I hope other people remember them too, because they're lovely. There was one, Baron's Tooth, that was the other book. That was it. There was Shabnam's Day Out, Baron's Tooth, and Baron is the brother of Monterey's, and it was a, a book all about his tooth falling out. Literally, he just lost the tooth and he was worried that it was going to fall in his dinner. And again, yeah, oh my gosh, that's come back to me. You know, I've been racking my brains all week trying to remember the name of the other book and it's literally just coming back to me now. Baron loses a tooth and he's worried that it's falling in his Bakewell tart. But the twist is it hasn't. <laughs> and then so he can actually give the tooth to the tooth fairy. But again, like I say, like Seinfeld for kids, nothing really happens in there. But it's just it's just a lovely snapshot of just just growing up like being an inner city kid going to primary school you know your friends are there you know doing they're doing PE and they get the apparatus out and that was the thing I was remember. all the kids were doing their P, doing PE in their vest and pants which is like, again it's like oh can you imagine if you tried to make children do PE in their underwear like literally but again it was a much more innocent time we didn't know any better did we you know back then it's made me so happy to just kind of think about these books 
And I really hope that the author, Joan Solomon, that that's what she wanted to do. I think uh, I, I hope that she kind of wanted to create something that kind of affected people in a lovely way. Well, it is interesting when you look at the 70s in particular. And I'm coming round to why I use that clip there. Then is that, you know, it was a time of, you know, we think it's high tensions at the moment and it is. But mm. the 70s was an openly hostile atmosphere. And, you know, some yeah. cities were more integrated than others. I say cities because I don't think anything smaller than city was integrated integrated at all probably yep. i mean somebody's probably going to try and prove me wrong on that but i think i'm largely right but the response right. to that seemed to be particularly in stuff aimed at kids that multiculturalism was just presented it wasn't even they weren't even making a stand it was just they put characters from different backgrounds into things and that yeah. was it like did anyone ever remark on brinsley ford being one of the double deckers apart from the fact he was later in aswan no, no. no. there was no. the tomorrow people were always racially mixed but there was this watch with mother show how do you do which i remember at the time because i would have been probably about four or five when it started it was based about well first of all it was presented by carmen monroe and greg knowles so you've got you know a racially mixed presenting team there but it was focused around stories about miss king's playgroup who were all from different ethnic backgrounds and it wasn't commented on once they were just kids with different names some english names some not english names who just had adventures in these playgroup sessions and that was it and it's only years later as an adult when I watched it again I thought blimey that was that's almost like sticking two fingers up to certain parties that were being very loud at that point but not doing it confrontationally it's just saying you can't do anything about it if you go to say Liverpool or some parts of London that's how it is that's how kids are growing up well I mean this is at a time I mean my older brother and sister at the time were going to school and people repeating things that they'd heard on stupid shows like Love Thy Neighbour and Mind Your Language and things like that you know silly silly i won't repeat but silly things like that but again kids tv and stuff for kids was just sort of quietly just kind of getting on with it and and as you say tim yeah it's not until later on you think oh wow yeah when you put it in context of what was going on in the background and probably you know maybe what you know what decision makers even probably thought the fact that that educators and people creating things for kids was actually sort of being much more progressive and much more inclusive. But I mean, even these words that I'm using, like, you know, being like multicultural and inclusive and diverse, you know, that wasn't, you know, we kind of, we we use those words now to describe what it is that we're trying to achieve. But back then it was just, we're just going to do it. You know, it was, yeah, we didn't have to fill in a form and tick all the boxes and make sure that we're representative enough. It was just kind of, let's just tell some story. Let's just have a snippet out of life and just show, show it how it is and you're right there's it's a much lovelier time i think in well i suppose childhood you always think it's a, a sort of lovelier time but you know i i, I don't want to say it's an innocent time because i'm not naive i know that that you know it's not it's not perfect but i do think there's a lot there's there are things to be learned from the past it's just it's just something that i i just sort of feel really strongly about that i think you know we can learn lessons from the past kind of get back to that simplicity rather than overthink it because i think sometimes now some of the tensions that we have now and you know sometimes people are walking up eggshells around each other and don't get me wrong it is absolutely important to respect people where they are and to and, and to respect people's individuality and to know and to use the correct to make it your business to think right i'm going to use the correct using people's correct pronouns obviously course all of these things you know referring to people's ethnicity properly all of those things are so important but I also think as well, not to overthink just the decency and the love of it, which I think these books just kind of encapsulate. It's just literally, here's some kids just having a lovely time and hanging out. And I think that's what we should, that's what we should aim to be. Let's just like, just be lovely people from like different backgrounds. And let's just hang out, eat cake, have jelly and ice cream. That's a lovely note to end on, but shall we have one last hat tip to Rick Mail? Yes. Oh, yes, please. Okay. You may know the answer to this. What top 10 hit from 1986 was he in the video for? Nobody remembers this. No. Was it? Oh, not not Living Doll? No, no. Okay. Two top 10 hits in the video for them. No, (laughs) no one remembers. He was in the video for Peter Gunn by The Art of Noise. Basically being Rick as a private eye. So if you don't remember watching that, go and watch it now because it is fantastic. Immediately, I will be. Oh, my goodness. Well, I thought that was a trick. I was like, oh, no, but everyone knows he did Living Doll. (laughs) In a burden trick question. But I'm glad to have sorted your evening's entertainment out. Deb, it's been brilliant. Thank Thank you. you.
<laughs> Thank you. I've had a marvellous time. Oh, you oh, you made my year. You've made my year, honestly. Free, a big book of columns and features by Tim Worthington. More details at timworthington.org.